This is Authors in Focus. Welcome back to the Authors in Focus podcast. Today we've got a very uh, special guest that I'm looking very forward to interviewing. We have James L. Nelson, historical author, maritime uh, author of the Norseman saga, the Isaac Biddlecombe books. His newest series is called Blood, Steel, and Empire. He also wrote a a book that I'm really looking forward to talking to him about called uh, The Only Life That Mattered, about uh, Jack Rackham and Anne Bonny, which uh, there's a lot of stuff out there about those characters. So uh, he's kind of done it all. Uh, American Revolution, uh, lots of nautical work, and I'm uh, excited to have him as a guest today. James, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. Excellent. How's everything uh, going right now for you? Very good. Very good. I'm I'm here on the coast of Maine, and uh, spring is in the air. Uh, snow is melting, and uh, yeah, all all things are are looking good. I hope all is well with you. Yeah, we're getting over the heaviest winter that we've ever had here in Toronto. Stepped out today without my heavy boots, wearing some running shoes, which was good. So uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm with you. I I can only handle so much winter, and we get it real bad here. <laughs> So I got a lot of things to talk to you about today, but I want to start uh, before we get into talking more about your writing uh, with a question that I ask all our guests. And uh, I think your answer for this would be quite interesting. So if you could have a drink uh, with any author, living or dead, who would it be and why? Oh, boy, that that is a tough one. There's a lot of lot of choices. Um, I guess from a literary standpoint, my first choice would be Joseph Conrad. Uh, he's an author that I admire greatly. You know, here's a, a, a man whose who's first language wasn't even English, and he, he can write so incredibly. And, of course, he was a, a merchant captain in Sail and Steam, which I find fascinating. Uh, so certainly Joseph Conrad, in terms of actually having a good time, I would say probably Ernest Hemingway, an author I also admire very much. I've read just about everything he's written, and I think it'd be a lot of fun to have a drink with. Um Probably Jack London uh, along the same lines, just in terms of uh, a fun guy to party with. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I've spent a lot of time working as a publisher and uh, and publicist for speculative fiction, fantasy, science fiction authors. Um, read a lot of historical fiction, and obviously, my and my first love is, is classic literature. So I've read all that stuff. I actually went through a uh, completest period with Hemingway, where I read mm. all of his books right up until. Um, Trying to remember the name of the book that he wrote right at the end about the bullfighting. Oh, uh, is it Movable Feast? I don't. Yeah, know. or um, the very the, one uh, of the very last books. Anyway, I've read them all. Actually, I'm a big James Joyce fan as well, and um, both of their accounts have said that they used to go out and drink together. And uh, Joyce, who was a sickly guy, skinny sickly guy all his life, would uh, basically just rip on people and, and try to be funny, and then. When they would come after him, he would hide behind, <laughs> behind Hemingway and say, Ernest, go, go get him. And, wow, that um, would be a party to join, all right? <laughs> yeah, so I always admired Hemingway. Uh, you know, tragic story, but definitely an amazing writer. And they don't warn you about The Sun Also Rises. For sure, when I think about the most miserable, decrepit, saddest books I've ever read, <laughs> um, that one is definitely up there. And I read it right around the time that we were uh, – 
having our about to have our first child as well. So oh boy, um, <laughs> it was it was rough. But anyway, James, let's get into um, your writing. What I'd like to know, uh, because you've, you're quite prolific and you've been writing for a long time, uh, and you've also done a lot of other things, which I'll, I'd like to talk to you about, including your work on ships and uh, stuff like that, uh, rest, the, the big project you're working on now. Uh, but when did you know you wanted to be a writer to the sense that you kind of had that buzz that said, I'm going to publish books and this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Ah, well, it's it's definitely been a long, strange trip. And, you know, you hear a lot of writers talk about how they knew from an early age they wanted to be a writer. You know, they'll say, oh, when I was five, I was writing short stories, and I always knew this is what I wanted to, to do. And, and I really wasn't like that. I did not, as a young kid, think that I wanted to be a writer. It was really ships in the sea that were the most fascinating thing to me. That was what really drew me. Um, my father was an English professor. My mother taught English in high school. So I always had that literary tradition in my family. So that was always sort of there in the back burner. But I also I had a lot of wanderlust, a lot of desire for adventures. And the thought of just sort of sitting at a desk and writing did not appeal to me. When I was in high school, I got involved in uh, radio, and that led to an interest in television and filmmaking. And I decided I wanted to be a big time film director. So I went to film school at UCLA. And um, while I was there, I came to learn that writing screenplays was really the best entree into the film industry. So that started getting the writing thing going in my head. And I started writing screenplays very, very badly and with no success whatsoever. But it sort of got the writing bug going. And at about the same time, I read, you know, talk about Ernest Hemingway. I read Carlos Baker's biography of Hemingway. I was really struck by the way Hemingway lived his life and the adventures that he had. Uh, and so that that really sort of got in there, too, and added to the whole mix. Uh, so I graduated from uh, UCLA, spent about two years in Los Angeles working in the television industry. But, you know, the wanderlust was still there, the desire to get out and do something. And I, I just I couldn't stand just sort of being in the city working at a nine to five anymore. So I, um, I ran away to sea then and spent a number of years working on sailing ships and it was during that time that I started thinking more and more about writing, uh, thinking, gee, it'd be a lot easier to write about sailing than actually doing it. Um, <laughs> so that was, that was part of it. And I, I turned 30 and decided it was time to get serious with my life. This was 1991. Uh, and, of course, my idea of getting serious is to become a full-time novelist, which is, you know, hardly a, a serious sort of way to approach life, but it, it actually worked out better than I thought it would. So um, it really wasn't until I was about 30 that I made the conscious decision that I am now going to be a writer, uh, which I know is pretty late uh, for most writers, but that was the the odd journey that I took. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm 44, and I actually just started writing last year, actually two years ago when COVID hit, and I had been working with writers, and I realized that, you know, I've always, through writing songs or writing, you know, poetry and stuff mm. all my life, I've always been a writer, but I've never been the type of writer that, that felt confident enough to actually put words down on a page and try to write a book. I actually found a co-writer, and uh, we've put out, like, a number of short books over the last couple of years, so... I mean, to me, 30 is like, if I, I, I feel like I could have had a lot of, if I had started then. 
One of the things that I found really interesting is, is um, when you mentioned uh, that you decided that you wanted to go out to sea and work on ships, there's something that I've always found glamorous about that lifestyle um, and, and intriguing about that life, which was one of the things that uh, drew me to want to, to want to read your books. What does it actually mean when you say you went out to work at sea? What were you actually doing? What was your life like at that time? And how much of that did you actually bring to the books that you wrote? Um, yeah, uh, excellent question. Uh, and it certainly is, is pivotal to everything that I've done since. As I said, you know, ships in the sea were always my passion. Even as a little boy, you know, I read books about sailing ships and I had big picture books of sailing ships and I, you know, I dragged my parents to every sailing ship in every maritime museum that I could. Uh, that uh, it was always always been my passion, and it sort of got shoved aside when I got into filmmaking. But when I was at UCLA, I started sailing uh, with the yacht club, the college yacht club, and more and more that that love of sailing sort of reawakened. Uh, and after I graduated and got a real job, I actually bought a sailboat and I was living on board in uh, Los Angeles while I was working. But more and more was sort of focused on sailing and interested in, in pursuing that. About that time, uh, I read in the local paper that this tall ship, if you will, the sailing ship, was coming into Marina del Rey where I lived. Uh, it was a replica of Sir Francis Drake's ship, the Golden Hind, the original built in uh, 1577. And they mentioned in the article that the ship was looking for crew. And I thought, wow, this is what I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to be a crew member on a, a sailing ship like this. Um, so the, the ship came in to port, and I took a long lunch break and went down and watched her come in and uh, went in the next day and applied for a job, and they hired me. And what the job entailed, the ship was really sort of a floating museum. So we would come into port and we'd open up to the public. Uh, they would tour the ship. We'd be there to answer questions. Uh, we did a lot of school programs. The schools would bring their classrooms down and we'd tour them through the ship and teach them about the history of the Golden Hind and Sir Francis Drake and the Elizabethan Sea Dogs. Uh, and then we would, you know, sail from port to port. So we sailed from Los Angeles down to uh, San Diego, and then, uh, and this was the, the one of the most attractive things. We sailed through the Panama Canal up to Texas, and then continued on port to port in Texas. So that was the sort of thing that we did on the Hind. After that, my, my intention when I joined the Golden Hind was to spend about six months on the ship and sort of get my sailing yayas out and get this adventure out of me, and then come back and resume my career in the television industry. So instead of being gone for six months, I was gone for a year. I left the ship and came back to L.A. and sold everything and moved on to the next ship uh, up in Washington State. It was a ship called the Lady Washington that was just being built. And I worked on her for a year or so and then joined another ship on the East Coast, uh, the HMS Rose, which is currently in San Diego. She was... Um, purchased by 20th Century Fox to play Surprise in the ship, in the movie Master and Commander. That was after my time. But I served on board Rose uh, for a couple of years, and we were also a floating museum. We did sail training and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it was, it was a terrific life. It was absolutely wonderful. But it's a life for someone, you know, in their 20s with no ties. And when I turned 30, I really I came to a point 
I was ready to sit for my captain's license, and I really had to make a decision. Either I was going to keep sailing or I was going to give it up and pursue writing, which was starting to become a bigger thing in my mind. And uh, ultimately, I decided to give up sailing and, and start writing. Right. And with the writing, it allowed you to really get into these big, big stories, like these big nautical stories that probably were some of those uh, influences that led you to want to live that life in the first place. Yes, absolutely. Horatio Hornblower probably had more to do with <laughs> the way my life turned out than anything. So you've written a lot of books that take place at sea, you know, like the Biddlecombe books, obviously. Um, and there's in that I'm reading the Norseman books and there's a lot of uh, you've got the long ships and you've got a lot of uh, I mean, the those books are, um, you know, cross different terrain, obviously, and, and, you know, deal with big, big battles and stuff like that. But there is an element of, of nautical adventure in those books as well. The one that interested me um, that I actually just started reading as well um, is The Only Life That Mattered because, mm. you know, Rackham and, and uh, Anne Bonny, I mean, I've always been interested in um, in that story. And so what what inspired you to do a take on, on those figures? Right. Um, well, yeah, and for uh, any of your listeners who might not be familiar with them, uh, uh, Anne Bonny was a, uh, a woman pirate, one of the few uh, documented uh, women who sailed with the pirates, sailed with Calico Jack Rackham. And I guess, uh, actually, it was my wife who I met on board the Golden Hind. She was also a deckhand. Uh, she was the one who first told me the story about Calico Jack and Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed. Don't forget Mary Reed because she's a part, a big part of the story, too. So, you know, it, it is an absolutely intriguing story. Uh, certainly, even, you know, at the time in 1720, people were astounded at this woman who dressed up like a man and went sailing with the pirates. Uh, so it was always sort of in the back of my mind. And, you know, I'm not sure what finally moved me to, to write a story about it. I, I suspect that it's something that had been kicking around in my mind for years. You know, it's one of these things that sort of sits there on a subconscious level and every once in a while will come percolating up and you'll think about it and think, wow, you know, that's, that's a story that really needs to be told. So yeah, I think that was, that was sort of it. And as I, uh, started writing more maritime fiction and becoming more interested in the subject of piracy, which had not been a big interest of mine earlier, I think it sort of all coalesced into that book. Now, did you watch, um, Black Sails? Uh, I have watched some episodes of it. Uh, I have not watched a lot. But uh, I, I liked what I saw. Yeah, it was really cool. Actually, it was right around the time that I watched Black Sails. It was a, a similar time period that I had been going through the um, the O'Brien books, like just plowing through them. Now, it's a very mm. different. I love Master and Commander when it came out, um, but I read the books a lot later. And obviously, you're looking at, at two very, very different interpretations and perspectives of um, life at sea. But yes. both, I both I found very... Uh, very intriguing, and I, and I like um, the whole idea of, of, you know, getting into the minds of these people and what it was like to live that life. And there have been some really cool interpretations, which is why this book really interested me, because I'm a really big fan of what you of, of the way you write characters. Like, for example, Thorgrim is a very three dimensional character. Thank you. you know, Thorgrim, for the listeners, is the main character of the Norseman saga, which is what, 10 or 11 books now? Uh, tens to start number 11. Uh, starting number 11. 
Um, the main character is um, is a, a Viking named Thorgrim who has two different, very different sides of his personality. But he's a very three dimensional character, and you get to see, you know, the love that he has for his son, uh, the compassion that he has for his crew, and for and, and you get to see him as a leader, and you also get to see him as somebody that you really don't want to mess around with. <laughs> um, so I, I found I thought it would be interesting to see how you get into the heads of these characters, uh, these pirate characters that are uh, so well, famous. So uh, shifting gears a little bit, um, I had asked you briefly about this um, when we were talking over text. Uh, you've been on some major publishing houses uh, with some of your work, and recently you've turned to uh, self-publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. I want to know a little bit more about that because I know that it's a very different experience. I work with a lot of self-publishers and I've been around the world of self-publishing a lot, not as much the traditional world, although I've obviously read a lot of traditionally published books and you've experienced both worlds. What was it that drew you to self-publishing and, you know, what made you make the switch? Because it's a very big switch. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, we call it indie publishing. Right. Self-publishing is so... <laughs> So frowned upon. Uh, no, it's, it's been a, an interesting uh, transition. You know, I started writing in 1992 and published my first book, the first Biddlecom book with Simon and Schuster in 1994. And it was an entirely different world back then. You know, this is the very beginnings of the Internet when there really wasn't an, an Internet per se. You know, there was not nearly, you know, you didn't have streaming services. You didn't have nearly the competition for eyeballs uh, at the time. The economy was doing well and publishers were paying, you know, really decent advances for books that they liked. And it was possible to make a living writing with the big publishing houses. It wasn't necessarily easy, uh, in particular because of the way publishers structure their payments. They'll give you, you know... One payment on signature of a contract, maybe a third on signature of a contract, a third on delivery of the book, a third on publication. So even if you get a decent advance, it's spread out over three checks over a year and a half. So it's hard to make a living doing that, even if you're getting decent pay. But I managed to, to do okay. You know, for probably the first 10 or 15 years of my career, I published with Simon & Schuster, with HarperCollins, with Macmillan. You know, and uh, I had a, a got a really good agent, uh, Nat Sobel, Sobel Weber in New York, and so you know we we do foreign rights and that sort of thing. So that's worked out worked out very well. But then, as you saw the rise of the internet and the streaming services and all of the competition that came up, you know the the publishing houses were just getting hit harder and harder, and were willing to pay less and less. And I hear that from all sorts of writers that I talk to that, you know, they say that the, you know, 25000 is the new $50,000 advance because uh, the publishers just aren't paying the money. It became harder and harder to, to make a living. And at the same time, I kept reading more and more about self-publishing. You know, of course, self-publishing was always sort of frowned upon. It was only something that was done by people who couldn't, you know, get a publishing contract with a major publisher. And for good reason, because, you know, when bookstores were the main outlet for selling books, you couldn't get self-published books into bookstores for good reason. You know, bookstores didn't want to carry them. So it was virtually impossible to sell self-published books uh, on any kind of, you know, decent scale. 
Uh, but of course, ebooks and the internet changed all that. And I started reading more and more about how a lot of successful authors were, were starting to self-publish and starting to find success with that and actually starting to like the freedom that it offered. And I had written the first of the Thorgrim novels, uh, Fingal, and uh, my agent shopped it around and we never found a traditional publisher. Uh, so it was just, you know, sitting on my computer untouched for a number of years. And I started reading more about self-publishing and thought, well, gee, you know, I got I got this book. It's already written. Uh, why not put it up there and see what happens? So I uh, I published it, self-published it and uh, made my own cover. And I got an email from a reader who said, hey, your cover really, really stinks. Uh, but I'm a graphic <laughs> designer, and uh, I'd love to make a new one for you. So, okay, great. So he made a new cover, which was excellent. And uh, lo and behold, the book started selling, and, uh, and selling well enough that I decided to write a second one specifically to self-publish. And uh, so I did that, and that sold more, and so I just kept going. And the, uh, the Norseman saga, the Viking books, have been doing very well. Uh, not only are myself publishing them here, but we've also got deals with a German publisher and a Russian publisher and a Spanish publisher. They're publishing traditionally overseas. I've got audiobook, uh, going with uh, an audiobook producer. So it's, you know, it's worked out very well. And I get paid every month, unlike from the big publishing companies. Uh, and it's, you know, to the point where my agent called me and said, look, would you like me to try to, sell the Viking books to a traditional publisher. And I said, no, I don't, I don't want to go with a traditional publisher. I'm, it's working out much better self-publishing. And, uh, and that, that continues to be the case. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I hear what you're saying. Um, there has been a stigma to indie publishing and self-publishing, uh, that the quality of the books isn't going to be the same, that the editing isn't going to be the same. And it's for the high quality self-publishers to sort of, uh, break that stigma down and prove, uh, that that's not the case. Yeah. And, no, you're right. And, and, you know, the, uh, because self-publishing is so doable now, you're getting even more crap out there than you used to. So, uh, so you're starting to sort of see how, you know, it's starting to sift out as far as how these books are, you know, selected, you know, how people winnow out the crap from the good books. Right. And I mean, obviously the, um, the model works extremely well for prolific authors like yourself because in a traditional model, well, I mean, I don't know. There might be some examples where it would be possible, but in most cases, to be able to release that many books in such a short period of time would be virtually impossible with those models. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, the uh, the publishers for you know most of the history of publishing had this idea that readers were only going to buy one book a year from right. a writer, which is absolutely absurd. And it's the kind of circa 1950s thinking that is leading all these publishing companies to be circling the drain. Uh, you know, if, if readers like a writer, they'll, they'll buy their books when they come out. You know, I'm, I, I don't have people telling me they, they want to wait a year for the next one. I have them emailing me asking, when's the next book coming out? I just finished the last one. When's the next one coming out? <laughs> yeah. No, so I'm, exactly. I'm writing as fast as I can. Exactly. I mean, especially with, uh, with ebooks because ebooks are, you know, compared to, um, print books relatively a little bit more inexpensive. Right. Um, and because it's, it's so easy. I mean, to have to go to a bookstore, you know, there's like a guilt factor. You go and 
you you have to actually go up to the front and you buy it. It's really easy with the point and click um, yes. for readers to just be able to kind of like obsessively obsessively binge read their favorite authors, which is Absolutely. something that you know I'm very guilty of as well. And that's the, you know that's the uh, yet another place where the traditional publishers absolutely fail because they're you know they're selling their ebooks for fourteen fifteen dollars a title and people are wondering you know why am I spending this much for an electronic download you know I sell my books for about four or five dollars and people who have not heard of me are a lot more willing to take a risk at that price point and if they like what they read then they keep buying definitely. Um, James, I'd like to talk uh, a little bit about Blood, Steel, and Empire, which yep. is your your newest series. Um, I'm going to ask at the end. I'll, I'll tell you to to let everybody know where they can find you, um, okay. because you know there's so much material out there, and it's and you know you can explore there. You know, you know James writes different stuff for different types of historical fiction fans, and you'll find what you like, and you might read it all. But uh, Blood, Steel, and Empire is the newest. Uh, and this is an intended series, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Yes, that's right. Yep. Okay, so tell um, tell our community a little bit about it. And um, you know, I do have predominantly right now, and this is going to change um, a like a, a speculative fiction community. So, the, but because there is such a, a sort of a bleed over into historical fiction, because a lot of the high epic fantasy deals with similar battles, similar themes. It just sure. you know it will bring in you know, magical elements and things. I, I tend to lump historical fiction into um, our community because there is so much of an overlap in readership. Absolutely, um, yeah. And there's, so, there, there's a little uh, mystical stuff going on in my Viking books, as you, I'm sure, have noticed. Yes, and that's actually something that uh, uh, also led me to the idea that this would be a cool, uh, that we'd be able to put this on, uh, like a fancy sci-fi sure. uh, blog, and people would be able to get that whole thing with Thorgrim Nightwolf. Uh, well, wasn't wasn't the uh, the original Star Trek series actually inspired by the Horatio Hornblower books? That's what I heard. Yeah, <laughs> that is. <laughs> well, there you that, go. That is what I heard. So, um, so let's like tell everybody about this newest series. Yeah. I know it's always when you've been writing. Um, you know, ongoing series for a long time, and then you you try something completely different. That's always you know exciting for authors. So tell everybody a little bit about this one and how it's different and why they dig it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this uh, the series is going to deal with the rise of the buccaneers in the Caribbean, which is you know, in when you look at the history of piracy uh, in the golden age of piracy, the buccaneers were really sort of unique and distinct from later eras of piracy. They started off as a bunch of sort of half-wild hunters who live on the north coast of Hispaniola, and they're hunting the wild pigs and cattle, uh, the feral animals that that live there, uh, and are ultimately driven off by the Spanish. And uh, it's, it's this wonderful law of unintended consequences. So you have the buccaneers who are they're really not hurting anyone. They're just hunting there on Hispaniola. But the Spanish can't stand any kind of interlopers into the Spanish Empire. So they drive them off and deprive them of their livelihood as hunters. Uh, so now you've got these really savage guys, violent guys, who have nothing else to do but go out pirating. And of course, they really, really hate the Spanish now. So the Spanish, you, you know, create this enemy out of sort of thin air. 
so the Buccaneer Coast follows uh, Jean-Paul Leboeuf, uh, who is a French hunter on Hispaniola in the very early days of the Buccaneers. And we see him as a hunter there on the north coast, ultimately getting driven out of Hispaniola, and they'll end up in Tortuga. And the series is going to follow the rise of the Buccaneers from the sort of loose group of savage guys into kind of a, a loosely formed society, the Brethren of the Coast, as they organize and start coming together and forming larger and larger buccaneer armies and starting to spread out across uh, the Spanish main, you know, sacking all of these towns, Maracaibo and Veracruz. And I mean, you had these massive buccaneer armies that were descending on the Spanish cities, sacking and looting them. The history itself is just fascinating. Uh, so we're going to follow LeBeouf as he goes from this uh, position as a hunter to becoming a leader of the buccaneers. And, of course, he's got lots of hidden secrets and, you know, backstory and all of that and lots of intrigue and lots of fighting and you know, all that stuff that makes makes life so worth living. Sounds awesome. Um, how many uh, planned books in this one? Not sure. I'm sort of ballparking about 10. Uh, oh, wow. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so another question, um, and I mean, this might be a little bit different um, for you because you're writing a lot, because what you're writing is, is based steeped in so much in history. But how much of yourself or your characteristics or your traits, because you are still writing original characters, make it into the into the characterizations or make it into your work in general, like yourself and the people in your personal life? And if so, what are some examples? Well, I think, you know, invariably, every writer puts a lot of themselves into their characters. You know, as we try to create believable characters, or certainly as I do, you know, I'll try to think about, okay, when, how, how would someone react to this? If someone did this, how would a person react? And obviously, the example I am most intimately familiar with is myself. So I'm naturally going to look at how I would react to something. And then I might also sort of put myself in the mindset of the character who is clearly different from me. Uh, I would say on, on one level, all of my characters have something of me. On another level, all of my characters have what I wish I was. <laughs> you know, I don't know as I would necessarily be quite as bold or brave or bloodthirsty as Thorgrim or LaBeouf or any of these guys. I like to think I would, but whether I actually would or not, yeah, I don't know. So there's a little real me, a little fantasy me. There is one uh, character in the Buccaneer Coast, the first, uh, the Bloodsteel and Empire, who is uh, modeled to a large extent on my wife. I'm not going to say which one because she might listen to this podcast and, <laughs> and she might not be happy. So uh, I'll keep that to myself. But uh, certainly I think uh, all writers, you know, writers, I think, by nature are observant. I think they have to be. I don't think you could be a writer if you weren't someone who observed how people behave and how they react and how they speak, uh, because you, you need to bring that in uh, into your writing. You know, I don't think you necessarily hear a writer say, well, I don't understand. How, you know, what do people think? I don't understand. That. <laughs> you know, I think you, you have to understand it because it's what writing is all about, creating realistic characters. So, yes, a lot of me, a lot of the people around me. Some drawn directly from them, from people I know, some, you know, amalgams of a bunch of different people. 
Right. No, I had to ask because as a writer, I've, I've often considered myself to be somewhat narcissistic in the sense that uh, every I write satirical fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and every every character is basically like some type of avatar of me, and every female oh, sure. lead is is some type of avatar of my wife. And and, <laughs> and 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 on top of that, not to get even more confusing, but I, we've got our the main characters that are avatars of of my wife and I, and then I bring myself in as literal me. Um, oh, really? <laughs> as well, kind of like in a similar manner to like what Stephen King did with the Dark Tower. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, oh, that yes, bre- yeah, yeah. with that breaking the fourth wall move. And one of the things I've been trying to do is challenge myself to write from a different perspective. So I'm actually writing from a female character's perspective who is very different than other females in my life. Um, huh, just okay. just as an exercise to try and challenge myself and get out of that so much me going into everything. Excellent. Yeah, I remember um, I had uh, one character in a Civil War novel that I wrote who was a painter. And it happened that my editor at HarperCollins was also a painter. And he really he liked the way I portrayed his character and his painting. And he said, how do you know what it's like to be a painter? And I said, the same way I know what it's like to be a woman. I just sort of, you know, try to put myself in that mindset and go from there. Right. Like I've heard a lot of people say, like, when I've when I've pondered you know male writers that have written such incredibly realistic female characters and i thought how do you do it and i've I've often asked them and a lot of the answers uh, are very similar and it's that i don't really necessarily think i'm writing a woman i just think i'm writing a person and i'm observing and i'm saying well how does this how would this person react to this situation and i put it into the writing and that's what i'm trying to work on right now as well so what's next so if we look into the lens of i don't know you probably get asked this question a lot, but like the next year to year and a half, um, like for a prolific author like yourself, what can uh, readers look forward to? Well, I think uh, right now my focus is going to be the Viking novels and the Buccaneer novels. I'm, I'm pretty happy with where those two series are. The Norseman saga, there are 10 books in that. I'm about to start number 11 uh, with Thorgrim and his band who've been, uh, they started off raiding in Ireland and they've been trying to get back to Norway for, you know, about 10 books now. And this special announcement, I will say it here first. I have not said this to anyone else uh, other than my wife. But I think what I'm going to do with that series is um, wrap it up after another two books or so. But because people really like the Viking books, um, Thorgrim has got a son uh, Harold, who's with him, and he has another son, Odd, back in Norway. And I think I'm going to wrap up the Thorgrim series and actually start a new series with his two sons going out together, going a Viking. And I think that has potential to be a lot of fun because you've got these these two brothers, you know, who are trying to share command of a of a Viking fleet. And of course, so you've got all the sibling stuff going on there and then the older brother, younger brother dynamic. And, uh, and I also, I, I want to get them down in some Viking history that really hasn't been explored much in fiction. But you know, these guys went down into the Iberian Peninsula. They went into the Mediterranean. They got to Constantinople. You know, just unbelievable reach that these Vikings had. So I want to start exploring some of that history. I think it could be absolutely fascinating. So I, I, I envision that for the Viking series and for the Buccaneers, as I said, the end of the, the first book uh, had them uh, heading off to Tortuga, which became the center of Buccaneer activity for a while and really where this Buccaneer society started to grow. So we'll see uh, LeBeouf there um, starting to, 
gain his place as a leader in the buccaneer community and starting to organize these larger buccaneer armies going out and sacking Spanish cities. So I think uh, between those two, that should keep me occupied for a little while, certainly. Well, you will definitely be taking my money. and uh, <laughs> Thanks, I'll and take I, it. And, <laughs> and I would imagine by the sounds of that, uh, many others, that sounds amazing. I love the... Uh, the uh the Norseman saga for any for people that are listening um is is really addictive and, and uh a lot of fun and excellent characterization if you're looking for characters that you can get behind and and uh you know kind of feel like you get to know them after a while um and also the battles are fantastic and and it uh it all works really well it's an excellent series so it's cool to hear that you plan on on sort of building an extended universe for that series thank you i appreciate that so what I'm going to ask you now is something that I usually end all my interviews with. I think it's a really important question, um, especially because we're dealing with so many people in the writing community that are looking to writers that have uh, achieved success and done a lot in the industry. If you could offer one piece of sort of sage-like advice to new and aspiring authors, uh, what would that be? I would say, oh, well, it seems very obvious, but write. You got to write. Um, a lot of people talk about wanting to be writers. It's very easy to sort of plan things and uh, and think about what you're going to write and talk about writing, but it really is all about sitting down and writing words and realizing, you know, it, that can be a very very intimidating thing. But you got to realize that nobody has to read what you write. You know, if you think it stinks, you don't have to show it to anyone. But the more you write, the better you get. It's it's just like exercise. It's just like practicing a musical instrument. You just have to sit down and do it ultimately. And uh, that, I think, is it, it seems so so blatantly obvious, but I think it's also a hurdle that a lot of people have a hard time getting over. So I would say, number one, just write and write consistently. Totally. I mean, I think a lot of people get really um, off-put by writing routines and, and kind of the peer pressure of, oh, I wrote 7,000 words today. Oh, well, I could only write like a thousand words today. So there's like a judgment that goes into, yes. uh, into this whole creative process. And I think creative people in general often have a tendency to be hard on themselves about things like this. So I'll add the kind of, uh, you do you kind of thing. Like it's better to do it, like you said, than to give in or submit to that type of peer pressure feeling. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. People often have a hard time finishing something because when you finish something and you say, I'm done, then essentially you're saying, this is as good as I can do. And if it sucks, that's as good as I can do. So, you know, I'll see people who keep fiddling with stuff and changing it and editing it. And, you know, at a certain point, you just have to take the risk to to your ego and just say, this is it. I'm done. Yeah, totally. And there will always be things that will come out like, you know, right when you decide to put it up, especially if you're putting it out yourself, you'll you'll read it and you're like, I'm not going to read this anymore. And then you'll decide to read it because your book's out. And then you'll notice like a typo that you're not like the weirdest one. Like, how did I possibly miss this? There's yep. always going to be something. <laughs> so I think it's it's really important to be like, OK, once you get to a certain point where you think you got it. You know, even in, in major traditionally published novels, you're going to find the odd typo or you're going to find the odd quotation mark unclosed or something. Oh, like sure. That. I think just knowing when that's the last time your eyes are going to look at this thing before it goes out is also really important. Yes, I quite agree. Absolutely. So, James, tell everybody um, where they can find you online. 
Oh, I didn't get a chance. I wanted to ask you about your new project that you're working on with the ships as well. But I guess when you're talking about where people can find you online, you can expand on that a little bit. too. Sure. Absolutely. Well, the uh, uh, if anyone wants to know about me and my books, my website is www.jameslnelson.com. And I also have an author page on Amazon uh, that's got all my books listed. So those would be the best uh, places to find out about me and my books and contact me through the website if someone wanted to contact me. Yeah, the project that I'm working on now when I'm not writing is uh, called Maine's First Ship. And we're building a replica of a sailing ship that was built here on the coast of Maine in 1607, a ship called Virginia. Uh, if someone wants to find out more about that, they can search for Maine's First Ship. And we've got a, a quite a nice website set up. We'll be launching in June, and uh, I'm the lead rigger on the project. Uh, it's very exciting. It's, uh, it's nice to... Um, you know, I spend most of my time sitting in my office in front of my computer. It's nice to strap on the old rigging tools and, and get back to playing with tar and rope and all that good stuff. It just keeps keeps me grounded in the, the maritime world. Will you be out at sea at all for this project or once this thing comes to to head or is it strictly uh, like a replica kind of, you know, landed ship situation? We'll, we'll definitely be sailing uh, probably along the coast of Maine. Uh, that sort of has to be determined. Uh, we'll definitely, you know, we'll be out there doing sea trials and shakedown and all that. Uh, and then we'll definitely be, be traveling around, yeah, around the coast of Maine. Uh, a few years ago, my wife and I also bought a sailboat. Uh, again, getting back to our roots because we both started off, uh, sailing our own yachts, our own sailboats, uh, before we started working on traditional sailing ships. So we're getting back to that and getting more into, into cruising sailing and, uh, Oh, every winter, Florida just sounds better and better, living aboard in St. <laughs> Augustine. So <laughs> one of these days we may actually do it. Awesome. Well, the project sounds amazing. Best of luck with that. And also, of Excellent. course, all your books and your, you know, your future writing endeavors. It's been uh, excellent talking to you today. Well, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, James. Take care. You too. Bye. This has been Authors in Focus. You can find my satirical fantasy novels on Amazon. Need help finding readers? Connect with me on Facebook in the Fantasy Sci-Fi Focus group or at authorsinfocus at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at fantasy-focus.com and where your favorite podcasts are hosted. Mm-hmm.